the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. At the start of each year, many people resolve that this is going to be the year they lose weight, get in shape, and improve their health. We begin with the best intentions, and within a few weeks, we fall back into our usual patterns. Today's guest, Rena Greenberg, has helped countless men and women tap into their inner willpower to lose weight and to keep it off for good. Her program has been taught in hospitals for more than 30 years and transforms how people think about food by tapping into the power of the subconscious mind. Welcome, Rena. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Rena, your work helps people lose weight and maintain the loss. And as I said, at this time of year, most people make all of these resolutions to lose weight and to get healthy. Why do you believe so many of us have trouble losing weight and keeping it off? It's a great question, Joan. And it's so interesting because um, you know that I, I've been, as you mentioned, I've helped a lot of people and it's with the power of the mind using what I call hypnosis. And many people will, when they first hear that, they'll protest and say, well, I can't be hypnotized. But I laugh because we're already hypnotized. We're hypnotized by the food industry, the advertising industry. So the messages that we're getting all day long are first of all, very contradictory. They're eat, eat, eat. And then, oh, you know, you don't look good. You're too fat, you gain weight. So we're hearing all these messages and they infiltrate the mind and cause a lot of confusion and it makes it difficult for people to stick to a sensible eating plan long term. Do you think the problem is we try to do too much all at once? You know, it's like we get real rigid and I can't eat any of these things ever again. And, and we just, you know, we can't sustain that. Do you think that's part of the problem? I do. That's a really good point. I just think that a lot of times people get in this mindset of either I'm on a diet, I'm off a diet. I'm good today. I'm bad today. And that creates this inner polarity and an angst. Because, like you said, there's too, it's too extreme. Yeah, you know, I've been queen of dieting, and I know the mindset of, well, I had one Oreo cookie, so I might as well eat the entire pack. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I, I look at that as an inner voice. You know, that's one part of you that's saying that, and it's a habitual, if you think about it, how many times have you heard that? It, and these voices inside our minds, they repeat and repeat. So that's why it's so beneficial to implant positive suggestions that actually change the way you think about yourself and food, making it easier to make new choices. In your book, The Right Way, you offered steps that help people lose weight. What are some of the things we should be doing? Well, the first thing, I I really feel with any endeavor, and especially uh, breaking free from an addiction to sugar and carbs, or just eating too much, or whether it's night eating, emotional eating, the first step is really gaining more awareness without judgment. You know, so often we're, you know, beating ourselves up, and um, speaking to ourselves in a very harsh way that we would never speak to other people, you know, in that tone of voice. So the first step is really starting to have compassion for ourselves, but at the same time, being completely accountable, like really noticing, wow, I just ate the one cookie, like you said, now I'm reaching for the whole pack, and am I even physically hungry? And start to ask yourself those questions, or what am I really needing here? Maybe you're just needing a little break. There could be so many emotional needs or even physical needs. Am I even, as I said, hungry? What What am I hungry for? What would satiate the body? So we have to start having more awareness of our patterns and then 
make a decision on a new way to satisfy our inner needs without continuing to sabotage ourselves. And I think, you know, I know in my own life, I, I think we work from the outside in, which is really backwards. We need to work from the inside out. Exactly, exactly. And so this is what I've, it's so exciting because I've helped thousands of people. In fact, I just now uh, recently heard from Rocky who lost over 100 pounds during COVID uh, using the gastric bypass hypnosis, which is simply a program that helps people feel as if they already had a gastric bypass surgery, but they didn't really even have it. It's virtual. So that is truly from the inside out where you're using that power of your mind and the power of the imagination and the power to accept suggestion in a positive way instead of by default when, you know, the rest of the world is programming us to do, to uh, live a life that it doesn't even feel authentic. So can you tell us a little bit more about gastric bypass hypnotherapy? How does it even work? Sure. It's a wonderful thing. I've been doing it now, oh gosh, at least seven years. And in fact, I was one of the first in the United States to offer the program. And it was really uh, created by a couple in Spain where one of their uh, patients uh, said, gosh, I wish I could just feel like I had the surgery without putting my body through that trauma and risk. And it made so much sense. Um, So I began doing that, as I said, here in the United States and have helped hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people. And what it is, is actually taking people through a virtual process in hypnosis so they can feel as if they actually had that surgery. And people will say, I met the doctor, I met the nurse, I could feel the band being placed on my stomach. But the wonderful thing is not only aren't there any negative side effects, the only side effects are positive, you know, feeling more relaxed, having better relationships, because what happens is we're actually activating a different part of the brain that's much more creative and much more able to allow us to experience peace in our lives as opposed to a frantic sense of overwhelm that we may feel when we're constantly dieting and um, feeling as if we failed. The people that you work with, do they actually feel the fullness in the stomach if they eat too much? Do they even exhibit some of the, you know, the, the less pleasant side effects? I know some people get sick if they eat too much. Does that happen when you do this? Yeah, that's a great point. A lot of people with the physical gastric bypass actual surgery do. They, they, they experience all kinds of side effects, nausea. They're unable to uh, metabolize certain nutrients. But no, the wonderful thing of doing the gastric bypass with hypnosis, the way I do it is, as I said, there are no negative side effects. People simply say they find themselves pushing food away. They don't need to clean the blade anymore. Um, they're happier with less food. And they're more aware of the types of foods. And the best part is, which actually studies are confirming is possible, but I've seen it with my own eyes, is that we can change our taste for food. So we can actually change the types of foods that we are craving. And that can happen through hypnosis, but actually some of the MRIs are showing in in the research studies that actually the areas of the brain that are lit up in terms of craving craving foods actually change when you do a process like Uh, hypnosis, gastric bypass hypnosis to change your thinking about the kind of food you prefer. I'm always fascinated when I learn new things about the brain because it is such a, just a remarkable process that we don't tap into and we really don't understand. And and listening to you, it just makes so much sense to me that this would be a route that someone would try before doing something so drastic as actual surgery. Absolutely, because you know, there's no harm. There's no harm. And the, with the world as stressful as it is, I mean, things are just, you know, between COVID and the economy and people in their personal lives, people are experiencing extreme loneliness. A lot of people are in pain, all, so many issues. And so what happens is we're walking around constantly with the sympathetic nervous system activated. And, you know, most people have heard of, think of that as the fight or flight response, you know, back the cavemen, you know, it was a very, it was a very positive response that we were given. So when we're, when we're experiencing real danger, like being chased by a lion, that's activated. What that means is the heart starts beating faster and now we can run faster or we can fight and the blood is shunted from the periphery and goes to the major muscles so that we can run or fight. But it, it makes no sense when you're sitting in traffic or just, you know, walking around your house and all of a sudden you're ready to, to run or to fight because your sympathetic nervous system is activated. And when the sympathetic nervous system is activated, you're really not thinking as clearly. And so what happens through practicing 
self-hypnosis, which is a form of mindfulness meditation that's very goal-oriented in terms of setting actual goals for your life and changing uh, patterns that no longer serve you, such as eating the wrong foods or overeating. And we're also at the same time, the side benefit, like you asked about the side, you know, the side effect, the benefit is that we then activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the vagus nerve. That is the, the relaxation response. And when that ha happens, we are much more deeply relaxed. The muscles relax, the brain waves begin to slow down from the fast beta waves more into alpha, and then sleep is, you know, when we deeply relaxed, delta, theta, brain waves. And what happens then is we are able to activate our much more creative brain and come up with creative solutions rather than we were talking about earlier, just this black and white thinking of I'm on a diet or off a diet. There's much more, not even gray, but I'd say color. This is much more, there's so many more choices that are available to us to create the life that we want and the level of health that we're desiring. You know, I think a lot of people have a misconception of what hypnotherapy is, and that's because of the things that we've seen on television, you know, people clucking like a chicken. And, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty educated woman, and I have to admit, the first time I was going to work with a hypnosis practitioner, and I do all the time now, the night before I was researching it, and I was terrified because I'm really an in-the-head person, and I kept thinking, what is she going to, you know, do to me subliminally that I won't understand? And and it's nothing like that. So can you explain to our listeners just a little bit about hypnotherapy and how it works? Absolutely. Here's the thing, you know, if you went to 10 different hypnotherapists, you might get 10 different responses to that excellent question. You know, how does it work? What is hypnosis? But what most people will agree is hypnosis is utilizing really the innate ability of the brain to respond to imagery and to suggestions. And if you think about it, as I said earlier, we are being bombarded with images and suggestions all the time that we are accepting, whether it's political messages, whether it's from the media. And so it's already happening. The only difference between consciously using hypnotherapy, as you're saying, going to see a hypnotherapist or even using self-hypnosis yourself is that now you are consciously making a decision. And what that means is you're starting to have more awareness of the messages that you're telling yourself. So a lot of times we don't, we become so used to the messages we tell ourselves. For example, a message like, oh, I'm always going to be fat or I'll never succeed. This is too hard. Other people, you know, it's my genetics. Other people, it's easier for them. And these messages become so normal that we just think they're true because we never question them. And hypnosis is such a wonderful, when we use hypnotherapy or self-hypnosis, it's an opportunity to give ourselves new positive suggestions that are much more aligned with what we actually want. So the first step in hypnosis is to know our outcome, know what it is we want. Well, let's say in this case, we want to live healthy at our ideal weight. So now we have to start to become aware of the messages that we're giving ourselves or that we're hearing from outside of ourselves. It could be even a loved one, maybe a spouse or a parent, even a child that's urging you to eat foods that aren't healthy for you because the idea is, well, this is fun. This is something we do together. But starting to notice, wow, am I just eating this pizza or drinking this beer because of the camaraderie? And if so, how can I get that need met? How can I really enjoy my loved ones without putting toxins into my body or without putting substances into my body that don't agree with me? So we start to then give ourselves new suggestions and using imagery. The mind thinks in pictures. We're making mental movies all the time. We don't realize it. So right now, Joan, if you had the thought, I'm going to take a shower, in your mind would flash an image of yourself stepping into that shower. And it's automatic. We don't even realize it. Well, that's a form of hypnosis. Because if automatically a picture of yourself going into the shower flashed through your mind, but it was a negative picture, let's say, you know, whatever, too much water, or it could be anything, then you would have a, a thought never mind, I don't want to take a shower. And let's say it was only cold water. Never mind, there's no hot water, right? So the same thing happens That's when we think of food. So you and I can each think of a donut, and for you, an area of your brain may light up, mm, that's going to taste good. But for me, because of the conditioning, or, or if I work with someone, the, the conditioning could be, ooh, a donut, that's going to make me feel gross. No, I don't want it. So when that happens, we don't need any willpower because our mind has changed, as you said earlier, from the inside out. You've been talking about a lot of self-awareness and self-hypnosis. Is this something, what, what you've been explaining to us, is this something we can do on our own, or is it always a good idea to work with an expert? 
you know, either way, ultimately the truth is all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. In other words, knowing, how many times have we heard someone say, I can't be hypnotized? Well, you have to want to be hypnotized. You have to allow yourself to be hypnotized. And one of the most heartbreaking things for me is I get calls almost on a daily basis from people who want to understandably help their loved ones. And they'll say to me, you know, my nephew is 100 pounds overweight. Can you help him? Or even other issues, you know, my husband's a gambler. Can you help him? Uh, my daughter smokes. Is there anything you can do? And unfortunately, I have to tell them each and every time, unless that person reaches out to me, unless that person wants it, unless that person at some level invests, it's going to be very unlikely they're going to change because we have to want to change. So that is really the first step. But when we want to change, self-hypnosis can be a very powerful tool. However, of course, it's going to be more beneficial to have someone assist you, especially in the beginning, and for a couple of reasons. One, how many times have we heard people say, I tried to meditate, but I had too many thoughts. I couldn't do it. You know, so, and, then, and then people abandon the, the practice. So it is something, it's a skill that we need to develop and learn and practice so that we're not overcome by extraneous thoughts that distract us from the process. Because hypnosis is a state of deep relaxation physically and focused concentration. So I compare it to a massage. Just like in a physical massage, yes, you can give yourself, you can massage your arm and it feels okay. But when you relax and close your eyes and someone else uh, gives you a massage, usually you can go so much deeper and get so much more benefit. So it is the same. That is the reason why people would seek out a hypnotherapy practitioner. And you can even do it over Skype or, or the internet or Zoom or even I work with many people over the phone even. Um, but it's that gift of being able to help them to achieve that state of hypnosis so they're not just, you know, feeling discouraged, like, I'll never get there. And you brought up some great points, Rena, because we've been talking about weight loss primarily and, and for health, but you just mentioned other things that hypnosis is good for as well. And so if, if anybody takes anything away from this conversation, I would say that it's to know that really what we're talking about is an inside job. There is no magic answer. It's an inside job and it takes work, but it can be extremely effective. Absolutely. It is amazing the difference uh, when we tap into a deeper level of the mind trying to accomplish goals rather than just spinning our wheels in our head, you know, trying to figure everything out. And Einstein said you can't solve a problem the same level it was created. And I love that. And so what happens when I guide people through hypnosis is that we're actually going to a deeper level within a much more creative part of the body and even a wiser part of the being, of the psyche, of the body-mind. And that makes it so much easier uh, to make positive changes. And it forces us to slow down. And really, it can help us in any area of our life. Yeah, and I love, exactly, and I love the side effects. I can't tell you how many people come to me for weight loss and say, I came to you for weight loss, but what, you know, I lost some weight, but what actually happened is my marriage is on a whole new level. Like, literally, this process saved my marriage. And people didn't even necessarily come in thinking that that was the side goal. Or people say, you know, people, oh my gosh, like, people at work are noticing, you know, uh, people who are still working with coworkers. Wow, you just seem so much happier. You seem lighter. You're much more fun, because it does. It helps us to really change and transform in ways that are really, really positive, and in ways that we can feel better about ourselves, much more confident. Imagine doing something that has positive side effects for a change. <laughs> exactly right, and you just never know. You know, for so many years, I, I did these uh, seminars in hospitals with large groups. And I would do a stop smoking seminar. Two people would come together. One would be absolutely certain, today I'm going to quit smoking. But they sort of dragged their friend along who was reluctant, said, I don't really want to quit, but I just want to keep my friend company. And inevitably, the friend would walk out and never smoke again. And <laughs> I just love that because they were more motivated than they even realized. Now, Rena, you are also an expert on CBD. For our listeners that may not be familiar with this, what is CBD and can people use it for weight loss? Great question. Yes. So I've been doing weight loss now for decades in hypnotherapy for, for many, many decades. CBD, I discovered in 2017, so before the rage, and it really helped me with glaucoma, but additionally, it had all these side benefits. I'm sleeping better, my hormones feel more leveled out. 
And I wanted to share it with other people. And when I discovered all the marketing deception and the uh, misinformation, and I, it broke my heart because I wanted consumers to make sure if they were going to try CBD, which is cannabidiol, it is the, uh, from the cannabis plant, the same plant of medical marijuana, but it is not psychoactive. It does not get you high. And the term and the technical term is hemp. It would come from the hemp plant. So it's the same plant, but the difference is that there's only less than 0.3% THC. So it's not enough to get you high, but it's enough to activate the CBD and it helps people with pain. the studies are showing it helps with pain with anxiety with sleep and with weight loss particularly when it's paired with other herbs that also work with uh, help with weight loss so I did I I went to work and I created products that work beautifully to help with pain and weight loss and sleep and it's really the highest quality CBD uh, that's available but more than that, I wanted to educate people so they understand wherever their CBD source, you know, how do they know they're getting the real thing and not just, for example, hemp seed oil, which is not uh, medicinal CBD. And so I wrote a book, CBD for Health and Wellness, Questions You Should Be Asking, and I'm offering it free for a limited time uh, at my website, renasorganic.com, so that people can download this book, get the information, they can see pictures of labels and certificates of analysis and really see what to look for when they buy CBD from any source. And Rena, in addition to that site, where else can our listeners go to to get more information about you and your work? So for the hypnosis and weight loss and the personal growth and wellness, it's easy, E-A-S-Y, easywillpower.com. Rena, thank you so much for joining us. As I said in the beginning, it's the start of the new year, and if anyone is like me, we can use all the help we can get to stay on track with the changes we want to make. So you have given us so much information and so many tools that we can utilize, and I really appreciate you being here to do so. Thank you so much, Joan. It's been wonderful to talk with you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. It's time for To Your Health. Joining us today to provide important information to make the best decision is Dr. David Hanscom, an orthopedic complex spinal deformity surgeon based in Seattle, Washington. Welcome, Dr. Hanscom. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to be on the show. So, Doctor, being told that you need spine surgery can be frightening. Do you believe that there are many surgeries that are performed today that may not be the best course of treatment? Um, I think probably the majority of spine surgeries should not be done, probably over 70%. And it was it's really bad. Medicine right now is really hurting people, but especially in spine surgery. We're making quick decisions. We're doing major procedures. People are doing very poorly, and it's not going well for the public. How did right? we get to this place where this is almost routine? You know, I'm not really sure. I sort of watched this happen. I was a resident back in the 80s, and they started doing fusions where, where they weld the vertebrae together for back pain. It started in Australia. I trained in Hawaii. I watched it come across Hawaii. Then it hit the mainland, and then in 1997, they developed some new technology where they put instrumentation in front of the spine as well as back of the spine, and it allowed us a higher chance of getting a fusion but in the midst of all this technology, nobody looked at the data. It turns out there's not one research paper that says we should be doing surgery for back pain, not one in 50 years. Do you, have you heard what the success rate is for a back surgery for back pain? It's 22%. And then what, the other thing that I didn't realize until about maybe five years ago, there's several research papers that document that if you operate and do any procedure in the presence of chronic pain, that you can worsen the outcome up to 40% of the time. In 5 to 10% of the time, it can become permanent. Doctor, what are the most common causes of back pain? We know the exact cause of back pain between 5 to 10% of the time. 
to some type of tumor or broken bone or infection that we can identify the source. But with just plain back pain, we actually don't know. We postulate that it's muscles, tendons, and ligaments around the spine. The most common reason for doing a back fusion for back pain is, quote, degenerative disc disease. I'm assuming you've heard that term. Ironic is that we don't know where back pain comes from, but we actually do know that chronic back pain does not come from a disc. The data shows very clearly that there's no correlation between back pain and bone spurs, arthritis, disc degeneration, bone to bone. None of those have been shown to be a cause of back pain. Yet it's the most common reason we do back surgery for back pain is for degenerated disc. The better term would be normally aging disc rather than, quote, degenerative disc disease. How much of a role does our lifestyle or even our emotions play in back pain? Well, they did a study out of Chicago, which is quite famous now, where they took a group of patients who had back pain for less than three months. There's a part of the brain called the nociceptive center, which means that the acute pain says it hurts. And on these research MRI scans called functional MRI scans, a certain part of the brain would light up. And that was true in every patient. Then they took a group of people who had back pain for more than 10 years. There's no activity in the pain center. It was only in the emotional center. Then they looked at the group of acute patients, less than three months of pain. They scanned them every three months. About half of those became chronic. The other half resolved. And the group that resolved, everything went quiet. And the group that became chronic, every one of them switched from the pain center to the emotional center. The current definition of chronic pain is that it is an embedded memory that becomes connected with more and more life experiences and the memory can't be erased. It's like learning how to ride a bicycle, it becomes a permanently memorized set of circuits. Should we be engaging in behavior that would produce more of the feel-good chemicals like serotonin, dopamine? Correct, and that is the solution. And what happens in pain, you're trapped. Nobody's telling you exactly what's going on. It's been several papers have documented that the impact of chronic pain on people's lives is similar to having terminal cancer. It's that bad. Then patients get labeled, then they get bounced around the system, they have their hopes elevated, then they have their hopes dashed. It's actually been documented in animal studies that the way to induce a depression is to to repeatedly dash hopes. And so you're in this system of being bounced around from procedure to procedure to procedure. You keep getting your hopes up, they keep getting dashed, your life keeps falling apart, and living in chronic pain is one of the worst parts of the human experience, and one in three Americans has the problem. It's really wrecking our society. And I think back surgery is actually a big factor in contributing to this because we do hundreds of thousands of these operations a year. About two-thirds of those should not be done. You're taking normally conscientious, active people and hurting their spines, damaging them, and it's a big problem. We're really hurting people. And, and that's why I quit. As the technology's gotten better, you think that spine surgery would improve. What happens is that we're now doing bigger operations that have a higher complication rate. Things have gotten much, much worse the last five years. Understanding the bigger picture, the poor results of the surgeries, the risk of complications, if you could write a prescription for someone who is suffering with back pain, what would that be? What should that person be doing before even considering surgery? Well, first of all, again, the acute pain goes to the pain center, and the usual good posture, biomechanics, rest, ice, heat, those things work well. The pain starts going past three or four months. Your brain is now starting to memorize the impulses, just like an athlete learning a skill. And it starts to become chronic, and that's where it becomes a complicated but not complicated solution. In other words, multiple things affect pain. For instance, there's a study out of Israel that shows lack of sleep actually causes back pain. It actually causes chronic back pain. And so first thing is sleep, making sure you get adequate rest. And that means consistently seven or eight hours a night for at least three months before you ever consider surgery. The second thing is stress. And people forget that with stress, it's not psychological, but when you're threatened either by a mental or physical threat, your body secretes stress hormones and you feel anxious. Well, anxiety is not a diagnosis, it's just just a reflex that says danger. And we keep trying to treat anxiety psychologically where it's just a survival reflex. And it's much, much more powerful than, than the conscious brain. So if you try to deal with anxiety with conscious means, it's a big problem. The way you decrease anxiety is you decrease the stress chemicals. And that's where exercise, mindfulness, meditation, relaxation, expressive writing exercises, forgiveness, all these things calm down the body chemistry and decrease anxiety. When you're trapped, in other words, the antidote to anxiety is control. When you're trapped by anything, whether it's finances or relationship or pain, your body secretes more stress chemicals in order to try to escape and solve the problem, and you become angry. Basically, anger and anxiety are the same thing. So one of the big factors in chronic pain is that people are really frustrated and rightfully so, and processing that anger is a big deal. It's actually the biggest deal in the whole process is actually processing anger. 
the medication adjustment's a big deal. You have to get your medication stabilized. Your life outlook's a big deal, how you approach the pain in general. But the bottom line, the way you solve chronic pain, again, much different than acute pain, remember, it's a memorized set of circuits. The essence of solving chronic pain is that basically you connect to your healing capacity, your own healing capacity, and you feel safe. And when you feel safe, you have a very pronounced, profound change in your body's chemistry. Your sense of well-being goes up, your nerve conduction slows down, you physically feel less pain. And what we've seen with hundreds of patients is people going to pain-free. They don't just manage the pain, the pain actually disappears. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. In today's ever-changing, get-it-done-now world, we live in a constant state of stress and worry. According to today's guest, Dr. Elizabeth Stanley, we can learn to become more resilient and alter our effects and outcomes. Dr. Stanley is an Army veteran, a pioneering researcher, and an associate professor of security studies at Georgetown University. She's the author of the book, Widen the Window, Training Your Brain and Body to Thrive During Stress and Recover from Trauma. Welcome, Dr. Stanley. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. So, Liz, in your life, you have experienced a lot of trauma. Can you tell us about a few of the things that you went through that led you to create a mind fitness training program? Well, um, we often end up doing what it is we most need to learn for ourselves, and I am definitely of that kind of background. I experienced several traumatic events during childhood, like many of us do. And then when I was in the Army, I served overseas and experienced stressful military training and even had a near-death experience while I was deployed in Bosnia. I also experienced a lot of sexual violence in my life, including sexual harassment that when I reported it, um, there was command reprisal against me, and that's why I left the military. And then while I was in graduate school, um, all of the coping I had been doing throughout my life, the way many of us cope with stress, pushing it under, compartmentalizing, denying it, keep going, I'd done that for decades, and my body was done. It was just not going to do that anymore, um, because that way of coping was turning stress on and not turning it off. And so at the worst of my um, you know, body acting out after all of that unresolved stress and trauma. I developed PTSD and I even lost my eyesight for a while. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, what it took to get my attention and realize that I needed to learn a new way to deal with stress. And um, that's what I did. And I developed this resilience training program and I write about it and the research we've done with it in this book. Liz, any one of the things that you experienced could have had a crippling impact on a person's life. But to experience all of these, I I can't even imagine (laughs) how overwhelming. I mean, not that it's a contest. I mean, people usually say to me, because in a very short period of time, my mother died, my sister died, my 23-year marriage ended, my oldest son left for college, and that was within six months of my life. But, you know, this isn't a contest that anyone wants to win. But when you go through these types of experiences. I completely understand with how you manage them for most of your life because I did the same thing and that so many of our listeners do as well. So let's talk about some of the strategies that people can implement to heal and move forward. The title of your book is Widen the Window. So let's start there. What is the window that you write about and what does it mean to widen it? Well, the window is the window of tolerance that each of us have for stress arousal within which we can keep our deliberate decision-making and being able to access choice online. When we're inside our window, we can do those things. And when we're inside our window, that's when our behavior can really be intentional and it can match our, our goals. That's when it's easiest for us to recover from trauma. And people with wider windows are much more tolerant of uncertainty and much more flexible during difficult situations. They can, you know, go with the flow better when life throws a curveball. They're much more comfortable with change. 
And they're also the best able to give and receive social support during stressful situations. So having a wide window is really important. Um, our window starts being wired when we're still in the womb, actually. And it's very affected by our early childhood social environment. Um, but we can narrow it throughout our lives. And it's interesting, Joan, when you were sharing, you know, about your experience, which sounds like it was a very intense six-month period for you, too, you said it's not a contest. And what's interesting is so many of us treat it as a contest, and our thinking brains, um, you know, will devalue or dismiss what's going on with us because we say, oh, well, you know, I haven't been raped or I haven't seen combat or I haven't lost three people in a six-month period. So, you know, I'm just dealing with garden variety anxiety or I'm just dealing with, you know, bills and too many deadlines. And, and we write that off. But the problem is when we do that, and we're all conditioned to do that, when we do that, it, it actually makes our stress worse because – that is not helping the part of the brain that controls recovery from stress to actually do the recovery process. So in terms of simple things to do, one of the most important is understanding how the part of the brain that controls recovery, it's very affected by where we're directing our attention. And we could be directing our attention consciously, but more often we're having our attention directed unconsciously. So when we're caught in a cycle of worry or we're watching, you know, uh, lots of traffic around us or we're paying attention to the news, which is always activating, you know, when we're directing our attention in ways like that, that's actually turning the stress on without helping to turn it off. So we need to become aware of where our attention is because we always have choice about what we're directing our attention. And then we can direct our attention in ways that help that old part of our brain that controls stress. I call it the survival brain. can help the survival brain to feel safe because that's the stance it has to be in for it to stop adding more stress and to start turning on the recovery functions we need to recover from stress and trauma. So because a lot of our window, the size of our window, is due to programming that we didn't even write, the key then is to become mindful of our behavior. Absolutely. And to become mindful of the ways that we are often caught in these autopilot, as you said, programming that was wired at times earlier in our life that was really adaptive. It helped us survive then. But it's not necessarily helping us to thrive now. And being able to recognize when we're in the middle of one of those programs and then to be able to redirect our attention in ways that help us to recover and rewrite that programming because we always have that choice today. Liz, what does the science tell us about stress, trauma, and resiliency? Well, you know, it's interesting. We often think of stress and trauma as two different things. And they're kind of conceptualized as different, and we go to different clinicians or different specialists to, to handle them. They're, what the most recent research is showing, however, is that they are a continuum. We'll turn stress on whenever the survival brain perceives a situation to be threatening or challenging. That's what turns stress on, and that's not up to our thinking brain. That's up to this unconscious part of our survival brain. And stress is traumatic if our survival brain is also perceiving us in that moment to be helpless or powerless or lacking control. And so when we begin to learn how to direct our attention, we can direct our attention in ways that help our survival brain to realize, even if the situation around us is not under our control and it's not how we want it to be, we still have choice in where we're directing our attention. And when we have shown our survival brain that, then we're accessing choice and that prevents us from feeling powerless and helpless. So it's a protective measure against trauma. And that's one of the ways we can become more resilient. 
Well, and I know a lot of people, whenever they go through some type of an experience, they automatically fall into that victim mentality. You talk about not being able to control things. I couldn't control my mother dying. I couldn't control my sister dying. I had already lost my father and brother. So that was my family. I couldn't control the divorce. All of these things in my life were outside of my control. And I got to a very dark place, but... I realized that I was at a fork in the road. And as you said, it's a choice. You know, which way will I go? Will I turn it into something positive? Will I choose to to survive and heal? Or will I stay stuck in that victim mode, in that dark place, and, and just live that way for the rest of my life? It really is some type of a choice that we all make. It's always a choice. It's a choice at a macro level, like you said, in terms of am I going to choose other behaviors, other habits, other ways of engaging in the world? But we also have this choice at a micro level, which is where we're directing our attention moment to moment. And I know that this sounds really crazy and even simple, like we should already know it, but we don't already know it even though the science is now showing it's the case, in a moment where we're feeling overwhelmed, we can direct our attention, for example, to feeling the support of the chair, feeling the contact of our butt with the chair. And that alone, just directing our attention to that pressure and hardness, or if we're in a comfortable chair, softness of the chair, that one little shift in our attention is actually showing our survival brain that in this moment, we still, it might be really sucky. The situation might be really sucky, but we in this moment still have, we're still stable, we're still safe. And that, making that little shift to show the survival brain that even in the middle of this really horrible situation, we're still stable that actually has tremendous effects so that we can access the macro choices you were talking about in terms of habits that turning towards um, building a resilient way of being in the world and engaging in the world again instead of giving up. And I think the message here is that it makes us extremely powerful. It does. It absolutely does, Joan. Yes. And when we have been through some really challenging things, like that really, I'm sure, incredibly painful and overwhelming period that you were talking about in your life, when you weather something like that and come out the other side, you know, there's a reason why people use the phrase post-traumatic growth, because we are wiring these new implicit memories that show our survival brain Even though this is horrific, even though this is really, really challenging, I still have capacity to make it through. And then the survival brain knows that for the next challenge we face in our lives. That is the process of widening the window. Liz, can you explain to us what intergenerational trauma is? Yes. So I said earlier on in our conversation that we start wiring our window when we're still in the womb. It starts wiring in our third trimester when we're in the process of starting to wire our brain and our nervous system, and it continues throughout our childhood. So if and we wire ourselves, our brains and our nervous systems and our hormone system, our immune system, all of these things get wired through the resonance with the people that we're spending the most time with, our early social environment, which for most of us is our parents. If our parents are coping with unresolved stress and trauma themselves, or they've just been through a really big loss, and they have not done their own recovery, then our parents' windows are also narrowed. And more likely than not, our parents' windows in that case have also led them to have insecure attachment styles. And both of these things, the, the, the narrowed windows of our parents, an insecure attachment style with our parents, which result from their trauma and stress that have nothing to do with us, it resonates to us, the children, as um, through stress contagion, through emotion contagion, and even through epigenetics, which is the process of um, repeated experience affecting our gene expression. 
it's one of the reasons why people will say, you know, alcoholism runs in the family. It's not actually the gene. It's the, the epigenetic changes that have been passed on generation to generation. So intergenerational trauma happens when the children begin to wire a narrow window, not because they've experienced something directly themselves, but because they're picking it up through this wiring and resonance from their parents. And that's why parents have a real responsibility to heal and recover from their own stress and trauma so that they are not conveying that into the minds and bodies of their children. And that's the really important point because we need to become mindful and break the cycle, not only for ourselves, but for our future family generations. And when we do that, how long does it take, Liz, to actually widen that window? How many generations? Well, you know, we can widen our window. The the published research um, that we've done, I've collaborated for a decade now with neuroscientists and stress researchers to look at the effects of my resilience program in um, troops before they deployed to combat, police forces, other high-stress populations. And they have shown changes in their sleep patterns, in their cognitive performance, in their hormones and blood biomarkers of resilience, in the way that their brains fire during stress, in the way that they go through stress arousal, like during combat drills, how fast their heart beats, how fast their breathing rate works. All of that shifts after just eight weeks of training. So parents might be super stressed right now, they can begin to turn off some of those um, chronic stress and trauma effects in their own mind and body today. And then through repeated experiences with their children, they can interrupt it in this generation. It doesn't have to be passed on. But the other side is if we don't turn it off and we let those changes stand in ourselves, the epigenetics research has shown that changes in great-grandparents, this research has been done not with humans so much with mice and, and rodents, um, rats, because they have much shorter lifespans. But they've seen traumatized mice and traumatized rodents, the great-grandparents, so four generations, the same epigenetic change, the, the detrimental change in immunity, in stress arousal, in memory function, it lasts four generations, they've shown. So we can interrupt that instead of passing it on. And we can start today just learning how to train our attention to be able to help the survival brain recover, um, getting more sleep, getting more physical exercise, spending time in regulated environments. Our minds and bodies are always resonating with something. So being in nature is actually very helpful for our mind and body because nature helps us to downregulate. Liz, thank you so much for joining us and for providing ways that we can manage whatever life throws at us. We can learn to widen that window and not only survive, but thrive. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me today, Joan. It's been a real pleasure. We'll be right back. If you're a business owner and you're not using video to market your company, you're losing customers and revenue. No matter whether you're a one-person shop or your revenue is in the seven figures, video is guaranteed to improve your fortunes. Hi, I'm Ed Lamoureux. I'm the owner of Lamore Strategy Group, a marketing consultancy. The most common two things I hear about why businesses aren't using video marketing is, one, I don't know how to do video marketing, and two, I don't feel comfortable on camera. Well, to both of those objections, I say this. Video shouldn't be scary. Failure should be scary. Numbers don't lie. According to HubSpot, video is the number one form of media used in content strategy. And according to WiseOwl, 84% of people say that they've been convinced to buy a product or service by watching a company's video. So how can you ride the video wave to your own success? Well, as Nike says, just do it. Practice, delete, and repeat until it looks good and feels right. And don't forget, you should tell stories if you want to get engagement. No one wants to watch ads. Well, 
perhaps with the exception of advertising agencies who uh, make their living off them. Learn how to tell a story, and you'll soon be watching the clicks and views multiply exponentially. If you need help with your video needs, give us a call or visit our website at lamorestrategies.com. This is Ed Lamoureux from Lamore Strategy Group, where our favorite story to tell is yours. Did you know that smoking is the leading cause of people being diagnosed with lung cancer? Isn't it time for you to quit smoking? Hi, I am Mary Beth Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner. It is not easy for everyone to stop smoking cigarettes. If you are a smoker and want to quit, let these tips help you stop smoking. First, start reducing the amount of cigarettes you smoke each day until you have no more cigarettes left. Let that day be the start of you being a non-smoker for good. Second, change your habit and substitute a cigarette for a water bottle so you change the hand-to-mouth motion with something healthy. Number three, create a positive affirmation and repeat it a few times each day. For example, I am a non-smoker today and every day. Let good health and thinking about the money you will save as a non-smoker continue to motivate you. I am Mary Beth Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner at MetroHypnosisCenter.com. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. joining us i hope you found the show informative at change your attitude change your life we believe that knowledge is power take what you've learned apply it and live your best life now remember the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation if you'd like more information visit our website cyacyl.com that stands for change your attitude change your life while on our site Listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 